Hi, I'm Alan Higgins. Welcome to this seminar with Donica Kavanagh on the history and metaphysics of games, play, and fun. Donica will talk about the background, key ideas, concepts, and theories surrounding the role of games and play in human society. Part 1, Donica develops a brief history of influential ideas surrounding the ideal of work and the role of play in human culture. Thanks, Alan. Thanks. And, and uh, hello all again. Hope you're all doing okay in, uh, in lockdown and things are going okay for you. Uh, so I had a chat with Alan and I, like I was involved in this particular class a few years ago with Alan and uh, I'm going to more just give a kind of a straightforward lecture about the the history of and the key writers around play and work and games. So this is going to be kind of trying to set a context for games and play and work and how this has evolved to where we are at the moment. So it is, and there's always a, a big danger, I think, with uh, with presenting kind of a history of ideas uh, lecture, which is what this is. It's what's the history of the idea of games and what's the history of the idea of work and play and it's always problematic because there's a danger of uh, just very being very selective in terms of how you how you pull the story together. So just an outline of what I'm going to do. So it's going to be about a history of the idea of work and play. I want to identify some of the major authors. I want to talk about the way in which a play culture or a fun culture has has developed in work and, and contextualized that. And that has moved from, I suppose, a play culture to a whole culture of gamification and games and work. And again, to, to set the context where, where that has come from. So there in the background, you can see um, Peter Bruegel's painting from the 1560s, which is Children at Play. So it shows, I think there's about 80 different games there. So like games and play have a, a, have a really long tradition in, 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 in society, in human society. And part of it is to go in, into that. So I'm going to start by looking at the, going back and looking at, at, at the idea of work. Where did work come from and where's, what's the, the, the principles behind work and what, what's the philosophy of work? So if you go way back to the ancient Greeks, say Aesop's fable, the story of the grasshopper and the ant from 560 BC. So the grasshopper is the, the playful, frivolous character. The ant is the the diligent uh, puts food away for the winter and and the moral of the story is that well hard work is good and that if you don't provide for the hard winter you're going to be in trouble but work is good and generally work was seen as as something that was good in the in the ancient world now it was also seen though as painful so the greek word for work is ponus which means pain and the greek God Ponus is the God of hard labor and toil. So it, there is this, this painful dimension to work uh, that always runs through the, through, through the, the history of the idea of work. Uh, Aristotle made this distinction, which we, we have right till to, to, the, to, to the moment, is that you look at, say, uh, universities versus technical colleges or, or uh, the way in which education is divided up between vocational work and thinking work. So the Greeks distinguished between manual and thinking work. So it was degrading to do manual work. So, so the, the work of the mind was much more valued by the Greeks, by Aristotle in particular, than the work of the hand. Um, 
So for Aristotle, Aristotle, it would be degrading for the master to perform or even know how to perform the menial duties and the manual duties of handicraftsmen, who, as their name signifies, lived by the labour of their hands. And that distinction between mental and manual work is one that has lived down through, through the ages. But they're both just forms of work. So if you look at the, the Judeo-Christian tradition, you've got the same... Um, some of the same kind of view of work as being toil and as being hard to do. So in some senses, it's, it, it's viewed as negatively, but something that you have to do. But in this sense, it's not about just, uh, unlike Aesop's fable, it's not about just um, pro- providing for the winter, but it's to atone for Adam's sin. So this is from Genesis. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So work is painful, but it's necessary. And so this is the kind of the key, the key moment, a key point about, about work. It's painful, but necessary. So here's something from the Old Testament. It describes the wife of a noble character as one who watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. So idleness being the opposite of work is bad. Right? So work is painful, but we have to do it. And here's St. Paul's from... Uh, the New Testament, St. Paul's directive that he who does not work, neither shall he eat. And hence the, the Pauline principle is an, un, an unwillingness to work is symptomatic of the absence of the state of grace. So this connection between religion and work is something that runs through right up to the, to the present day as well. And I'll talk a bit more about that in a while. So if we move on to play instead of work, and we look at the classical view of play, we've got, we've got a view that for, say, for example, for Plato, Plato sees play as just a distraction from the real world of forms. So Plato wasn't into, into theatre or stage because they're all mimicking when, when what you should really be doing is trying to get to the real world, which is the world of forms, the world of ideal types. Um, and that would have been his, his, his story of the cave, is that don't get distracted by, by what we think is the real world but actually the real world is this world of ideal forms. Um, so the idealized uh, image of a horse, for example, or the idealized image of truth or beauty uh, is what we should be pursuing. And, and we do that through, through the mind for Plato. So Aristotle, children and, and, and I suppose play and games is all, have always been associated with children, if you go back to Bruegel's painting. So children... Uh, for Aristotle and for, for the Mediterranean cultures generally uh, were, were pretty well belittled as being just um, in the same category as brutes and animals. So here's a quote from Aristotle, children and the brutes pursue pleasures. So animals and children pursue pleasures, but they're not, they're not at, the, at the intellectual level that uh, Aristotle wants, wants the good citizen to be at. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, very influential religious philosopher, but again using the language of Aristotle, where children and dumb animals in whom there is no virtue seek pleasure, whereas the man who is master of himself does not. So this, this desire not to seek pleasure, uh, but to work hard uh, and pleasure being and play being something that's essentially bad. And again, here's Chaucer. An idle brain is the devil's workshop. And that all feeds in then into the Protestant work ethic, which you probably are, are aware of. So the Protestant Reformation in the, the 16th and 17th century. So the emphasis 
within the Protestant Reformation was that hard work and a frugal lifestyle is at the heart of an individual's calling and success. And that's, that's a, a whole philosophy of life. It's an ethic. It celebrates thrift, waste, wastelessness. It's, it's a doubting philosophy. So there's a, a respect for inquiry, individualism, and, and it's tempered by this willingness to subordinate your own personal interests to a concept of the greater good. So there is, there is a, a very strong sense of the collective and the greater good within the Protestant uh, Reformation tradition, but it, it's centered very much on celebrating the individual and individual in striving for endeavor and working hard. So that, in that sense, work is virtuous. Work is good. It's socially good. It's materially good. It's spiritually good. So it's both a service of love given to one's neighbor and it's a duty of gratitude owed to God for his grace. So that's the, that's the Protestant tradition of, of the Protestant work ethic. We must work not only for, for material reasons, but also for social reasons and for spiritual reasons. Now, the, the Catholics didn't really buy into this. They, they took Thomas Aquinas in, in a different way. and They said asceticism is properly contained, say, for example, within the monastic context. So a monastery, it's okay for a monk to work hard and dedicate his life to to God, but that needn't be extended into all aspects of everyone's everyday life. So you're this split in terms of the importance of work between Catholics and Protestants uh, that came up, that was, that became exacerbated, I suppose, as part of the Protestant um, Reformation. So Puritans were, I suppose, a particularly um, zealous lot as part of the, 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 the Protestant Reformation. And, and for, for the Puritans, when you take, if you go away from work and you go back to look at play, they considered playful activities as sinful. So those activities aimed ex- exclusively at providing or enhancing enjoyment. So enjoyment is bad. So sports, acting, theatre, all of these things are are to be um, restricted and limited because they're they're not good. We should be working. So, for example, here's in 1559, a Spanish Franciscan attempted to forbid our limited pastimes. So here's at around the same time, another Puritan, he railed against most forms of game playing and pastimes, especially on the Sabbath. And you'll see in, in Ireland, uh, and, and one thing I should say about this uh, talk is it's a very... European Western uh, take on um, on work and play, so it might be useful to get some some alternatives. So that's that's my own context. So I, I apologize from that from the beginning, but it's interesting. Even if you look at the, at one of the distinctions between uh, Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland dominated by Protestants, traditionally the South traditionally dominated by by Catholics. So there's a there's, there's much less. Uh, game playing and play happening on the Sundays in the, in Northern Ireland than there is in Southern Ireland. So the Sabbath is, is a very quiet day up north, right up to the present. So here's a here's a quote from a Puritan manual on child rearing. There is in all children, though not alike, a stubbornness and stoutness of mind arising from their natural pride, which must in the first place be broken and beaten down. That's so the foundation of their education being laid in humility and tractableness. So it's about breaking down children. Um, they must be beaten. They must be broken. Um, children who are at play, there's a problem with them. We need to sort them out. 
And that's this, this uh, long tradition of the Puritans uh, who were hostile to play and playfulness, which they see as epitomized in childhood. So here's William Penn, who, for, who founded Pennsylvania, uh, had a huge estate in, in Cork. Uh, the best recreation is to do good. So if you're going to get into play, well, if it's going to do some good, well, that's okay. But don't do recreation just for the sake of, of, of fun. So play is sinful. So here's two quick quotes. Here's from Tawny, 1926. Conscious that he is but a stranger and pilgrim hurrying from this transitory life to a life to come, the Puritan turns with almost physical horror from the vanities. Amusement, books, even intercourse with friends must, if need be, be cast aside. For it is better to enter into eternal life halt and maimed than having two eyes to be cast into eternal fire. So like just reading books and chatting with people and amusements, you could end up in, in the flames of hell for doing that. And here's the Tocqueville, who, who, who did a famous trip around America in the, in the mid-19th century. So the Puritans who founded the American republics were not only enemies to amusements, but they professed an especial abhorrence for stage. They considered it as an abominable pastime. And as long as their principles prevailed with undivided sway, scenic performances were wholly unknown amongst them. These opinions of the first fathers of the colony have left very deep marks on the minds of their descendants. So, the, the, and I think this is why a, a history of ideas can be can be useful and important is to see that the depth of uh, the depth of these the depth that these ideas uh, continue to, up to the present day. So, here's the, a map of Europe. And it shows the, uh, the dominant religions by country. I, I hope you can see the, the colors there reasonably well. So just going through it, the blue colors, the blue is where the, where the population is dominated by Catholics. Where Cat, Catholics are in the majority. The purple is Protestants. The, the reddish color is Orthodox Christians. And the green is Islam. So... Max Weber, about 100 years ago, looked at a similar map to this, and the map wouldn't have been that different if he'd, 100 years ago, he'd have drawn, seen the same map. And he looked at the purple countries. He saw the Scandinavians, he saw the United Kingdom, Germany, the Netherlands, um, and he said, and Switzerland, and he said, how is it that the, the Protestants seem to be better off than the Catholics? So the Catholics in Italy, in Spain, Portugal, Ireland, the Catholics tend to be the poorer and the Protestants, the richer. And that was his question. Why is that? And if you, if you do this study, if you do kind of statistical analysis now, you'll find much, much the same. So, so his, his point was it's to do with the Protestant work ethic and that the, the belief that the Protestants have in work, which the Catholics didn't hold, that um, that, that was at, at the core of the, the, the success of particular economies. So for, for Max Weber... 100, writing 100 years ago, there was a very significant connection between capitalism and particular religious beliefs, and in particular the religious beliefs that privilege work over, over play. So Protestantism, and he, uh, that, that picture doesn't, have, uh, doesn't include America, but America, of course, is, was very much dominated by Protestantism. So Protestantism in America was influenced by Puritan and Lutheran views, and you can see even recently... Uh, Trump goes around with a Bible, shows a Bible. Like in most, say in Ireland and Britain, you would, you would not find a, a prime minister or a president doing that. 
was hegemonic in the U.S. after the first colonies were established in the 17th century. So in 1850, only 3% of the U.S. population was Catholic. And interestingly, even though there was a huge number of, of Irish went over uh, to America, a, a large number of them converted to Protestantism. So here's Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers. Um, he was committed to hard work. And he, he would have made the point that man is a tool-making animal. And what you found was that, in the, in particularly in the mid-19th century, that, that the development of management and the development of management innovation was led very much by, by strong um, Scottish Calvinists, in particular, uh, who, who dominated the U.S. railway industry. And, and, and management, in some sense, its roots are very much within the, the, the Protestant work ethic tradition, as espoused by, say, Calvinists and Quakers uh, and Puritans. So Frederick Taylor, for example, uh, the famous kind of one of the founding figures in management in the late 19th century, he was a Unitarian Unitarian from Quaker stock. And and centrally, his Taylor's idea was about eliminating waste. Waste is bad. And that would be very consistent with the the Protestant tradition of of frugal, of working frugally. And moving on to the 19th century, there was a big emphasis in, in philosophy on utilitarianism, which is, which is all about, it's an ethical position, which is to say, well, how do you decide what's good? What activities are, use, are, are good and what activities are bad? And for the utilitarian, a uti- an activity is useful if it's valuable, meaningful, and moral. So usefulness is what's, what determines whether an activity is good or bad. Is it useful? It must be useful. It must have some value. And these were some like people like Jeremy Benton, John Stuart Mill, Jevons, in all in the all in the nineteenth century, celebrating the idea of usefulness. Something must be useful. It mustn't be so. Play a problem with play and games all along is they're not, they're not seen as particularly useful. They've no real use. They're just uh, frivolous activities. So, for example, Bentham says, insofar as labor is taken in its proper sense, love of labor is a contradiction in terms because. Labor is something that's painful but necessary. It's this long tradition of, of seeing labor as painful but necessary. So Schiller, in, again in, that, in roughly the same time, says um, play is the aimless expenditure of exuberant energy. So it's aimless, it's, it's useless, it's, it's very much the antithesis of um, utilitarianism because it's got no use. Why would you play because it's got no use? Uh, it's just the aimless expenditure of exuberant energy. Uh, let's not be distracted by play. Let's do something that's functionally good. So, for example, as a consequence of that, you have Yale and Harvard banned all forms of football in the 1860s. Because football, what's, what's the value in, 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 in football? What's the use in it? It's, it's of no utility. So let's, not, let's just ban it. And, and ban all sorts of games and, and all sorts of play. Now, not everybody bought into that. And I suppose a, a really uh, vocal critic of the utilitarian tradition in the 19th century was Oscar Wilde. So here's a quote from, from Oscar Wilde. We live in an age of the overworked and the undereducated, the age in which people are so industrious that they become absolutely stupid. So, and again, another one of quotes, Wilde's quotes was people who know um, the price of everything and the value of nothing. Um, so that, so that this, this critique of utilitarianism was, was, was very much foregrounded by people like Oscar Wilde. But he was, 
he was a marginal character. The dominant tradition, I suppose, in, in the 19th century was utilitarianism. And, and it's a very, very strong tradition, ethical position right up to the present day. Is it useful? Is it functionally good? Let's do the things that are useful, is the, is the utilitarian tradition. And that was also, I suppose, if you look, at staying in the 19th century, you have Marx, uh, who died in 1883. And Marx was centrally concerned uh, about the individual as a worker. So the worker was of central, a central role for, um, for Marx. So here's some, so you could argue that for, for Marx, the individual is homo faber, man the maker, if you excuse the, the gendered element there, but homo faber. So human identity is founded on work, labor. And hence you have, you have the labor party, which is about work. We, we, need, we have the workers party, work being essential to human identity. So here's from 1867, Marx writing, the use and fabrication of instruments of labor, although existing in the germ among certain species of animal, is specifically characteristic of the humor labor process. And Franklin, that's Benjamin Franklin, therefore, who we mentioned earlier, therefore defines man as a tool making animal. So the ability to make things is what defines the human condition. So, and, and, and hence, work is of central importance to somebody like Karl Marx. And in the tradition, so un, being unemployed is, is um, a really bad thing for your human identity because you're not working. If you're not working, that's a really big problem uh, within, this, within, within the, this Marxist tradition. So Marx, therefore, if he, if he saw work as being all important and the manufacturer say a potter makes a pot, um, it's the pot defines the potter's identity, and Marx's critique of capitalism was that under capitalism, the product of your of the worker's labor, for example, the pot or the chair, is alien to him and stands opposed to him as an autonomous power. The life which he is given to the object sets itself against him as an alien and hostile force. So, in other words, what you 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 uh, a potter makes a pot and then sells the pot in the market within the capitalist system and must disavow the, 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 the pot that they've made. And the, and the pot then is, is alien to, to the, the potter. And, and for him, this alienation that comes by putting commodities into the market and turning them into a commodity alienates the worker and is, is really debilitating. So this, this is part of the, of the Marx critique of the capitalist structure is that it, it debilitates um, the worker. For him, you see, work can and should be fulfilling, but capitalism makes it instrumental. So it's a painful means to an end rather than an end in itself, which destroys man, man's spiritual life, serving to, and here's a quote, to mutilate the worker into a fragment of a man. So the, wor- the worker then just becomes a bit of a machine, doesn't become the full individual that, that could be, according to Marx, by, by, um, by celebrating what work is all about. Instead, you get this fragment of a man, degrade him to the level of an appendage of a machine. So the human just becomes an appendage of a machine, destroys the content of work by his agony, and alienates him from the spiritual potentialities of the labor process. So this, this industrial capital structure um, has de- degraded the human condition, and hence it must be resisted, and hence it must be overthrown. So that's the, 
that's the capitalist critique and essentially it's it's um it's about the importance of work so one of the things then is is this division between work and play um and this is like we we'll get we we'll get in due course to gamification but in some senses gamification is mixing up the categories of work and play so particularly since the industrial revolution there's been a lot of work in terms of of creating a division between work and play so for and so the modern distinction between the ideas of work and leisure or work and play was a product of industrial capitalism and that meant that making that distinction between work and play meant that we have temporal spatial and social consequences so a temporal consequence for example would be okay you work from 9 to 5 and then you play from 5 to 9 uh, you work you work during the day you play at, at you, you you play in the evening time you work during the week you play on saturday and sunday uh, spatial distinctions so we have the factory where you work and then you're going to your family is going to be separate so you're going to in in terms of urban planning you have some places where you work and some places where you play and some places where you live so the distinction between work and life becomes mapped uh, spatially and and materially and there's social consequences in terms of who's working so you end up with the man working the woman is at home but not working so dom- domestic work is not seen as 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 work per se it's the man who's doing the work in the factory so you've all sorts of consequences based on this distinction between between work and non-work which wouldn't for example have been if you and even today if you if you if you talk to a farmer a farmer doesn't necessarily divide the job into 9 to 5 and temporarily so if a cow is calving at night time the cow the farmer goes out and, and sees after the cow so the distinctions between these these distinctions between work and play was something that was very much associated with the industrial revolution and industrial capitalism and and not something that we should necessarily see as being essential or permanent it it was a feature of the world and what we're finding increasingly in in the contemporary world is that the distinctions the, the long standing distinctions but not permanent distinctions between work and leisure are being blurred to say the least so you also had uh, the, and again the victorians during the 19th century the temperance movements deludified and desexualized work so work so here's uh, frederick engels who wrote a lot with marx uh, so next to intemperance which is uh, not not drinking in in the enjoyment of intoxicating liquor one of the principal faults of english working men is sexual license so there was this um and of course um uh sexual activity is seen as a form of play uh so it, it so so work so the, the whole idea was to deludify work to desexualize work to take the play out of work to take the sex out of work uh to take the drink out of work um so typical of that of course would have been frederick going back to frederick taylor so if you, the, the the word work appears 798 times in his the principles of scientific management while play occurs only four times and here's a quote from that book it's a matter of ordinary common sense to plan working hours so that the workers can really work while they work and play while they play and not mix the two so that's frederick taylor in 1911 saying that well we we work at sometimes and we play at other times and we need we need to create a temporal structure to reinforce that distinction and enforce that distinction you work while you work and you play while you play and you don't be mixing the two and of course scamification 
is mixing the two. So here's here's Henry Ford is making much the same point in a, 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 about a decade or two later. When we are at work, we ought to be at work. When we are at play, we ought to be at play. There is no use trying to mix the two. The sole object ought to be get to get the work done and to get paid for it. When the work is done, then play can come, but not before. Thank you for listening to Design Talk. The music used is Tired Traveller on the Way Home by Andrew Codeman and Jimmy's Jam from Ample Tunes. For license and other information, see the show notes.